Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 28. Numbers chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Again, this is the Word of God. It was written a long time ago, but when God wrote it, He Himself had you in mind. So this is God's Word for you, even now. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, Turn to chapter 30. We're going to start in verse 3. This is a big jump. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and her pledge by which she has bound herself, and says nothing to her, then all her vow shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband, while under her vows or any thoughtful, thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vow shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear but he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself. And the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, Then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. 
These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. Uh, Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we do uh, thank you for your word, and we readily admit our frailty before it. We ask, oh now, oh God, that you would speak and that we would listen. For Christ's sake, amen. I think it's probably fair to say that much of the American culture is a study in two contrasts kind of simultaneously. Two opposite ends of the extremes taking place at the exact same moment in time. Extreme number one is a nation that has come to understand the monotony of a technologically driven life apart from God. So that Day after day, night after night, morning after morning, evening after evening, a a nation of just drudgery, monotony, just make it through the day. That's why we have so many stay-at-home moms that are alcoholics. Just make it through the day. Anything to help me make it through. Not we as in our church, our nation. Just clarify, I'm not calling out our stay-at-home moms. Just, we'll clarify that. Just clarify, not get myself in trouble needlessly. If I get myself in trouble, I want to earn it. Not do it by accident. On the other extreme, we have a nation that's realized the monotony is dreadful. And so we'll use our technology to build newer and faster distractions. And so we have this just kind of bizarre kind of combination of a nation that's moving absolutely nowhere at the speed of light. It's fantastic. A nation that's kind of like the old Looney Tunes cartoon, just feet moving as fast as we can to go nowhere. Lives that are spent frenetically to do nothing. It's a horrible place to be. To struggle with the meaninglessness of life, to struggle with the purposelessness of life, to struggle with a life that is so busy it's hard to think, namely because we don't want to. But to know that there's something more. To know that there's something past the busyness, to know that I had to have been made for something more than this. And I suspect that you could look at any number of chapters in the Bible to find an answer to that. By God's mercy today, we're going to look at Numbers chapters 28, 29, and 30 to see an answer to that. Not the place you probably default to look at, and to be honest, probably not either for me. But still a good set of chapters to consider. Now, part of this, I guess you have to kind of, as we often do, consider the context of what's taking place in the life of the people of God. This is one of the things I like about the big wall behind me is it helps kind of remind you of the big story. 
That when we read the Bible, it's not just taking place in kind of one moment. We're not reading Polaroid pictures, if you're old enough to even remember what those were. We're not looking at kind of snapshots and photographs. We're looking at one grand narrative where we zoom into the various parts and pieces, the places on the timeline. Where we are in human history at this point is uh, very significant, a, a, a race of people, humans, that have declared war against the God who made them. It was a stupid decision. It's gone poorly for them ever since. Us, I guess, I'm one of them. Everything after that, Genesis 3, war being declared, has gone badly in some fashion for the human race. God has cursed men and women and creation itself. Death has entered in. And the stories that follow are one atrocity after another, after another, after another, after another. Where, as best we can tell, the third person alive and the fourth person alive is the first murder. That's terrible. And you would think, oh man, there's no hope for this. This resonates with my experience, a a world that's out to get me, a creation that's out to get me. This explains everything that I feel, that kind of deep-seated nagging cynicism in the back of my head, the maybe a little bit of kind of paranoia that everything's out to get me. No, it is. It's the created order has been cursed by our God. But as the story has continued, this God has said, I will redeem for myself a people a people that will be mine, I will be their father, they will be my children, and it will be a loving relationship, so much so that even though the created order is cursed, that curse will work for their good. And so from Genesis 3 on, we've been tracing the narrative of a people group. That people group, those that the Lord has promised everything will work to their good, and uh, as they've made their journeys, it's been wild to say the least. A flood so great it killed everybody but eight people on the planet. Fairly significant. Leaves a mark in the family story, doesn't it? Hey, you remember we had neighbors that we weren't related to last year? I missed that. Until we kind of get to a point where God kind of Genesis 15 and so intervenes in the story specifically to pick a man and say, you're going to be my man and my people will be your people and we'll look at your line all the way through. And he goes from not just the God of his people, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who knows his people, who's faithful to them. They're a mess. They continue to sin against him, and he's faithful to them. He's faithful to them. He's faithful to them until they're brought into terrible, terrible struggle. Centuries of slavery at the hand of the Egyptian until he brings them out. A mighty nation. First time ever, a mighty nation, a a mighty number of people who have God's blessing upon them, who have God's presence with them. He takes them out into the desert and binds himself to them and them to him. A covenant, a promise, 
With that promise, He gives them His law, which is not a list of do's and don'ts the way that we see the law. It does involve that. But it's an instruction as to who that God is and how His people are to live. It's first and foremost teaching them this is what this God is like. These are the ways that our family behave. Some of you lived in a part of the world or a part of time in our nation's history where that was the regular family discipline. This is how our family behaves. Don't care what they do. This is how we behave. That's what we've gotten. That's Leviticus and part of Numbers. This is the family. This is the culture. This is the way that we live as God's people, as His beloved children. This is our God. Now, Israel, I guess in some sense to give us good comfort to ourselves, they they don't actually get the the gist of it fairly quickly. In fact, they sin over and over and over and over and over and over again, and very slow to learn. It even costs them their lives. So much so that the Lord sends an entire generation out to die and takes their children with him into the promised land. And where we are in numbers is kind of standing with our toes up against the dividing line of the life of struggle in the past and the land of promise before. Slavery behind, the wilderness behind, suffering and death behind, a land of milk and honey before we enter into God's promised blessing. And these chapters are No, they give commentators fits because they are seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, if you looked at 27, how does it end? It ends with God telling Moses, it's time for you to die. You're the last guy in the generation that will not enter into the land. They can't go into the promised land, the land of milk and honey with you there. It's time for you to die. Joshua will follow Joshua will lead the people of God. And you would expect, okay, great, Moses is going to die. This is next chapter 28. I expect Moses to die. Joshua to lead. And instead, the Lord takes a teaching moment and says, people, it's so easy for us to be caught up with the place that we're leaving or the blessing that we're entering into. It's so easy for us to be caught up in the difficulty of our daily lives. It's so easy for us to be caught up in a transition of power. It's so easy for us to be captured by other things that the Lord gives a reminder. Chapter 28 the car's motoring along at top speed, getting ready to head into the promised land, and the Lord drops it into park. Right? Everything just kind of comes to a crashing halt in the book. And the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Command the people of Israel. He's already done this, interestingly. Say to them, 
My offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time, and you shall say to them, this is the food offering, and then he goes into the Sabbath offering, and then the monthly offering, and the Passover offering, and the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booth, and all of these things we've already heard before. You're like, what are you doing, God? Well, it's a reminder You have a people that have lived an excruciatingly kind of painful life, a nation that's lived a painful life up to this point. Heels resting in the land that they've left. Toes dangling over into the promises of God and the blessings of God. And you have this kind of standing in the middle of difficulty and blessing. And the Lord stops them and reminds them Remember, it's all about knowing me. It's all about knowing me. Whether you're in slavery in Egypt, whether you're fleeing the Egyptian army, whether you're being defended by God as he uses the sea to destroy their chariots, whether you're marching into a nation where the walls start falling down so that you can kill them, It doesn't matter. That's all secondary to the primary focus of the entire story from Genesis 1, not Genesis 3, from Genesis 1 all the way through Numbers 30 so far. The primary focus has been that we are to be captivated by the reality of living with God. Living with God, that's it's the kind of immense crashing pause in the flow of the book to remind them, look, it's not about entering into a land of milk and honey. It's not about the blessings. It's about the person who gives them. About being with God. And friends, I would love to pretend like this would be a reminder that's not needed for us. That we could be like, well, I, I never get caught up in my life too much. Your opening introduction was interesting as I thought about my neighbor, but it didn't impact me at all. I have no struggles with either the tedium of a technologically driven boring life and the busyness of a technologically driven boring life. And maybe you are that one person good on you. Well done. But the reality is most of us need that reminder, that kind of crashing assault into our face to say, hey, be reminded it's about being with God. Knowing him and being known by him. Loving him and being loved by him because he has loved us first. It's so easy to be occupied with the routine of work and the routine of food and the routine of sleep and the routine of hobbies. Routine of soccer season. It's not really in routine right now, thanks to the queen. It's so easy for us to be captivated by the routines of our lives and to forget the only reason we're alive left is to know the Lord and to be known by him. It's so easy. 
So easy to forget that in our postmodern times with our culture and our sophistication and our money and our busyness, it's so easy to forget that the reason you exist today is to know the Lord. All the other things are good and great, but secondary at best. To know the Lord. Well, again, if we're kind of academically honest, we're going to say, well, how do I know God? How do I know God? That's interestingly where God begins in 28. He carries on through 29. It's these two chapters of explaining to them exactly how you know Him. You know God by bringing sacrifices. I mean, look at it. Your ESV has handy headings. I'm assuming most of your other translations do as well. You bring sacrifices. Daily offerings, Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings, Passover offerings, specialty offerings from the various feast days. You, you bring sacrifices. I was doing the math just looking at these because they kind of all stack on top of each other. To run their tabernacle for a year would take roughly in the neighborhood of a thousand spotless, blameless lambs every year. Friends, that is a lot of blood. I mean, I'm not super bothered by blood. I know some of you are. I don't know how much blood is inside a lamb, but I suspect if you take the inside of it to the outside of it at a thousand, that's a lot. And those are just the blameless lambs. How how much of a flock do you have to have to to maintain just the worship of this nation? That's not including the other animals. That's not including the drink offerings. That's not including the grain offerings. It's It's a nation whose entire worship is built on sacrifice. And I don't mean the sacrifice of inconvenience. The, ooh, I gave up 10 minutes to go meet with God. Yay me. Way to start my morning. No, what I mean is a sacrifice, the death of something to pay for sin. You see, that's actually the lesson here is that God is explaining to them the entirety of their existence is to be about knowing God. And how do you know God? Well, there's this massive problem in the way called sin. And the only way we get rid of sin is through the death of a sacrifice. A payment. Something gives its life to satisfy the consequences of evil actions. Now, this is where, again, it's important to think on the timeline of church history. We're way up at the top, aren't we? Here, the Lord is teaching them at the very beginning. He's he's giving them the categories that will be fulfilled later. Literary terms is foreshadowing. (laughs) He's teaching them the right categories so they're thinking the right kind of thoughts to say, look, we only know God through a sacrifice. A lamb will give its life every time I have to meet with God. Can you imagine that? 
I mean, we don't think in these kinds, we should, but can you imagine? It costs something, it's life for you to meet with God. The Passover, which is ultimately fulfilled in the supper, in order for your family to celebrate it, you had to kill a lamb that you raised in the home as your family pet. I don't know how many of you have watched baby lambs. I think they have to be the cutest things that God has ever made. They're adorable. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine the weeping in your home? The kids have been playing with this thing. It's, it's slept in their bed with them. And then to meet with our God, it cost my favorite pet its life. Thank you. Have to, how many of you would have been at church this morning if you knew you had to shoot your dog to make it here? No, I'm not kidding. How many of you? Now, some of you have been like, yes, let's go to church more. I like this because I'm ready to be done with these animals. I hate these things, particularly those of you with cats. I get it. It's all right. Your cat wants to do the same thing to you. It's okay. I understand. No, seriously, though, I mean, I, I make light of it, but... How differently would we think of going to church if it cost us the life of our beloved animals? And that's what he's teaching them. Is that to be in God's presence because of sin, because of the bad things that we've thought, the said, believed, or done, it costs something its life for me to be in God's presence. Now, we know this is the beginning of the story, but if you fast forward about mm, 20 feet on the wall or so, we're now no longer looking forward at lambs being killed, doves being killed, and things like that. Those sacrifices never ultimately satisfied. That's why they had to be done day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. They were never satisfactory. And so the Lord provides the one sacrifice. The thing that is, I think, the most shocking of them all. That he would give his son. Now let's be honest. How would attendance drop if you had to shoot your dog to come to church this morning? I suspect we'd have a fairly small group. How would attendance drop if you had to shoot your kid to come to church this morning? Nobody would be here, including me. None of us would. We wouldn't. And the interesting thing is that the Lord loves his people so much that he gave his son so that we could know him. You see, that's what he's teaching them, is that sin is such a problem that something has to die. And the two options are it's either you or it's his son. This is why we make such a big deal about Jesus. You have the opportunity to die for your own sins if you want to. The payment will be insufficient, so you'll spend the rest of eternity paying it. That's what hell is. The wrath of God for all eternity, paying for sin. Or Christ instead. 
the interesting thing is then how this gets applied, I think. There's a natural, again, I, the Lord knows us. He knows our weakness. There's a natural temptation for us to want to walk away from the gruesomeness that it cost Jesus his life for me to be in God's presence. I don't want to think about that because it's, it hurts too much. It's, it's too awful. It seems so unfair. Christ would die for me. I don't want to think about that. I just want to think about being nice. That's why I went to church, just so we could be nice to our neighbor. That's all I wanted, really. Pastors are making me uncomfortable with talking about death. The interesting thing is how it's trained into their nation. Look at, again, the flow of these chapters. If you have headings, it's helpful. 28, 1 through 8, daily offerings, lambs killed morning and evening. 9 and 10, Sabbath offerings, additional lambs killed. 11 through 15, the new moon celebration, your monthly offerings, additional bulls, ram, seven male lambs killed as an offering. Then you get to your annual feast, the holy days, the special regulation times, a unique time to be with God. Passover, you have the family pet that's killed on top of the regular daily and weekly and monthly deaths. 26 through 31, the festival of weeks, where you have a bull, seven lambs, a goat. Well, maybe 29, the festival of trumpets. Goat for sin offering, seven lambs, a bull. Day of atonement. Ram, seven lambs, a bull. Festival, you couldn't get away from it. It was the designed rhythm of God's people so that they understood you never made it past the sacrifice on your behalf. You never get away from it. It's not like it's a thing where, hey, I made the sacrifice. Now me and God are buddies and we're fine with nothing else ever needed. Every time you came into his presence, you came into the presence, his presence through a new sacrifice. And what happens in the New Testament is to say, look, we don't need a new sacrifice. We get the same one every time. So when you enter into his presence on a daily basis, you enter in through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. So that weekly when you enter into his presence with the people of God, in the family of God, in the worship of God, we enter into his presence through the blood of Christ shed for you. And interestingly, because that sacrifice is sufficient in such a way the calendar is altered, that's it, it's done. That's where it stops. Daily individual entry, weekly corporate entry. That's the new schedule. Entering into the presence of God by the blood of Christ. Friends, you never grow past that. You can grow to understand it more richly. You can grow to understand it more fully. But you never grow past Christ.
Now, interestingly, this is why, one of the reasons why I read from the book of Hebrews so regularly, that's what the Hebrews thought they could do in some sense. They thought, okay, now we've got Jesus, that was the missing piece. Now from here we can kind of figure it all out and move past that. And the consequence of it is that their hearts get hard and their minds drift away from the truth of God and their spirits grow dull to His Word and they struggle. Hearts that are drifting, dull, and hardened, even to some of their destruction. And the author of Hebrews calls them back constantly. Chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. And then you get the impression it's kind of working through. What else can I think of that Jesus is better than? Better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the high priest. He's, He's a better sacrifice. He's better than everything because Jesus is the end of salvation, Alpha and Omega. In Him are all God's promises, yes and amen. They are in Christ. And once we understand that we are in Christ, that we never outgrow Him, that we never grow past Him, that the focus of our lives is to be His blood given for us, our union with Him, our growth in Him, then we get chapter 30, which when I read it, some of you were like, what is He doing? That's fine. I thought the same thing when I read it. It's okay. It's fair. No, actually, there's an extremely important point here. The Old Testament treats vows as the pinnacle of godly piety. By that piety, you mean holiness worked out, godly living. They treated vows, and I believe correctly so, as the height of godly living. So you want to be a good godly Christian today? One of the ways that you work that out, you're a good godly Christian because you're in Christ. One of the ways you display that is keeping new member vows that we took keeping baptism vows that we're going to take in just a couple of weeks, keeping the vows that we make to the Lord. Vows are the the outworking of that relationship with God that has been established. And interestingly, those are designed to transform our head and our hearts. And so what you get in chapter 30 is some case law working out how do we then live faithfully to our God. I love that logical flow. I love that. God is the most important in our lives. We enter into His presence through sacrifice, and the consequence is that we are trying to implement godly living. We're trying to implement godly living. Now, I'll be candid. I'm aware of the natural temptations that we have as humans. Temptation number one is to forget the first point, (laughs) that God is the focus of our lives, and to go, well, work is the focus of my life. Family is the focus of my life. My wife that I love so dearly is the focus of my life. Being a pastor is the focus of my life. No. Being with God. That's the natural temptation all of us face, is to take secondary things, usually good things, and to try to elevate them to the great thing. It never works. It ends up poisoning the good things. You want to ruin your family. 
right? Husbands, do you, you know, have you thought about this? Do you want to ruin your family? The fastest way to ruin your, not the fastest, maybe the most thorough way to ruin your family is to worship your wife. It will kill her. She's not made to endure that much pressure. Oh my good grief. It will kill her. It will drive her insane. The pressure of having to be God? No. Wives, you want to ruin your family? Worship your calling as being a mother. Ooh, that'll destroy it. That'll tear it to pieces from the inside out. Taking good things and elevating them to the high thing. That's problem number one. Problem number two that I think happens kind of subconsciously and easily is to take the next two points and flip them in order. Right? So point number one was our lives are to be built around our God who has made us and calls us and loves us. He is the focus of our life. Point two is we enter into his presence through sacrifice. Point three is this is to then transform how we live. You flip those second and third ones, it gets extremely problematic. Because what you have then is this logical flow. God is supposed to be first in my life, and I live a good life, and that's how I come into his presence. Now, realistically, I don't meet very many people that hold that view honestly, meaning they don't say it. Nobody, and not nobody, very rarely do I run into somebody who's like, well, I'm a good enough person, I get to go into God's presence. Most people don't say that anymore. But the reality is that we kind of talk about Jesus, but in the back of our minds, we secretly think, well, I deserve it, though, because I'm not that bad. Again, unlike that person, because, woo, they're a mess. I deserve to be in his presence because I'm good. And the problem with that is that eventually something's going to happen that's going to challenge your belief in your goodness. And friends, if you think you're a good person, subconsciously, quietly, back in the back of your brain, and you think that's enough to build a life with God around, one, you'll have a really dry spiritual life. But two, there's going to be a day where that falls apart. When that's not enough. Now, if you didn't catch what's happening here in Numbers chapter 30, I'll give you the quick 30,000 foot view. Verses 1 and 2. In the culture in which they lived, the home was oriented around the man, the father, the husband. So if a man made a vow, he was bound to it. When he made a vow to God and told God, this is how I'm going to live, he was bound to that. And because it's an honoring relationship to God, you can get out of it. It was God gets to determine my life, and I'm bound to that, even if it's stupid, which I suspect many of them were. You could see how that would be a real big conflict of interest or challenge if both men and women have the ability to make vows that can in no circumstances be broken. So interestingly, what God arranges is a system, a hierarchy to help us understand. 
If a woman makes a similar vow, the day that her father finds out about it, he gets the final say on whether or not it's actually a vow. And if he doesn't protest it, it takes effect. If he does, his will wins out because she's living in his home and he is her head. When it goes into marriage, the same thing. So that if you have a husband and a wife that have competing vows, I said to the Lord, I would do such and such. She said to the Lord, she did such and such. We've run into conflict between the two. Whose one's gonna win out? Well, that's a hard one to figure out. So the husband gets to, again, protest and her vow gets done away. It's setting up an order. Because what's happening here is the Lord is trying to explain to his people, your godliness is to be worked out thoroughly and in community, and in your family, and with your children, and together. It's not what we so often as Americans think of, that that my relationship with the Lord, what it's supposed to produce is this individual holiness. It should produce that, please. But individual holiness is designed to operate within the body, within the community, within the family, within the church. So the the consequence is that we have hearts captivated with loving God and being loved by Him. Minds that are preoccupied with the love of Christ and hands that are busy being obedient to the King of Kings. Whether that's done in our Worship, or done in our vows. Now, I would make one quick application to us here. This is the challenge for Christ Ridge. We are a group of individuals because most of us have lived in this nation our whole lives, not all of us. And so we're not even fully aware of the individualism that kind of steeps into our souls and into our minds. And it's so natural for us to think of a church very much like individual grains of sand, focus on the individual instead of focus on the thing that God is building together. My challenge to you is, in essence, twofold. One is let us labor together to build that very thing. A heart, a mind that's preoccupied with the Father, a heart that's in love with Jesus and hands that are busy obeying. May we together build that. That's what your 30 minutes between Sunday school and worship are designed to give you, chance to help build that together. That's what flocks two times a month is given, is designed to help you do this. Together, we're building this together as a body, as one family, growing in this all-consuming love of God, a focus on Christ and obedience. Secondly, I feel the need to say, though I know many of us will go, well, pastor, I know that to remind you that our message, the message that the church rises and falls upon, 
is that the Lord loves His people and He sent Jesus to pay for sin. Period. I love that definition of salvation because the only way I'm mentioned in that sentence is as a passive recipient. The Lord loves me and He gave His Son for me. The Lord loves you and he gave his son for you. Might it be that we be recommitted intellectually and devotionally to the knowledge that Jesus died for me. Father, we are such frail creatures. Forgive us our sin. For Christ's sake, amen.